Welcome to episode 15 of The Variable Podcast. This is your host, John Bragle. And this week, we have the opportunity to hear from mental wellness coach, Kim Rapich, on the topic of emotionally wealthy, redefining success. Kim has over 20 years of experience on both sides of therapy and coaching. She's a licensed clinical social worker, a certified Enneagram coach, and a financial coach. Kim uses her personal and professional experience to help high-performing artists and entrepreneurs find the missing links to dissatisfaction in their personal lives. I've said this before in this podcast, but I'll say it again. I love coaches. In many ways, coaching saved my life at a time when my confidence and identity was dwindling, and it also helped me rebuild a foundation as a human being, which further enabled me to establish a loving relationship with my girlfriend, who is now my wife, and I've also worked extensively with coaches who have helped me work through the pain and negative stories I developed at a time in my life and career when I was burned out and depressed. All in all, I can't say enough great things about coaching as well as enough great things about Kim. We met months back. She had shot me a note on Instagram, which we get a little bit into in the intro. And we just immediately hit it off. A lot of Kim's work surrounds all the areas that I'd worked on with a variety of coaches in my past, but she seems to do it all and do it all from just an incredible wealth of experience. So if any of this podcast resonates with you at all, I'd encourage you to send Kim a note and you can track her down on her site at kimrapich.com. That's K-I-M-R-A-P-A-C-H.com. And the last thing I'll mention in this intro is that this podcast episode was recorded live in the Variable Community, so members can have a chance to ask questions and connect with our guests. In addition to our guest Q&As, we have weekly interactive events and conversations on topics that rest at the intersection of wellness and filmmaking. This past month, we've had discussions with director Elliot Rausch about navigating the unknown, combating scarcity mindset with therapist and post-producer Saritha Rothermel, and we have weekly personal project working sessions led by director-writer Carl Stetler, along with our monthly wellness accountability calls. It's just a very lovely group of filmmakers. So again, if any of this resonates, check us out via the free trial link at wearevariable.com. For now, I'm going to transition to my conversation with Kim in just a couple of seconds. Enjoy. Kim, we first connected through Instagram about, I don't want to say six months ago. Does that sound about right? Yeah, I think so. You had reached out and I looked at your site and immediately felt a kinship and we hopped on a call and I learned a little bit about what drives you in connection to your coaching work. And also knowing that you are, are you still a licensed therapist or was that your- I am. Mm -hmm. And that's like the- Social worker. I'm not practicing therapy, but I'm still licensed as a social worker. Got clinical it. Clinical social worker. <laughs> Got it. And I think that piece of it to me was so meaningful because I've worked with a handful of coaches in my life and none of them actually had that experience in social work or therapy. And um, I think that just brings so much more depth to the coaching process. And then, of course, we talked a lot about the mind-body connection and kind of healing from trauma, which has been a huge part of my journey. So I, I'm hopeful we dive into some of that stuff on this call as well. But uh, I guess, Kim, my first question for you would be like, how do you describe what you do in your own words? Well, as you said, I used to be a therapist. I had a private practice for about 10 years. 
And I left the medical model of therapy to do coaching. And so what I do now is I work with artists, entrepreneurs, creatives, high achievers to help them achieve optimal mental wellness in a complex industry. And I do that through using a tool called the Enneagram, which is personal development tool that offers insights into our unique personalities. But I also fuse that with understanding someone's story and their personal experiences, their family of origin, and particularly if there is trauma, and then also helping them understand how the nervous system works. And so a lot of us have been trained or conditioned to stay up in the headspace and to do the right thing, to achieve goals, to get a job, whatever it may be, that I teach people how to incorporate where they've been with, you know, what's the filter they're currently seeing the world through and how to regulate their nervous system. And what I have found is those three pieces bring a lot of self-awareness, self-compassion, understanding, and language. I think language is really powerful. I think a lot of us struggle in ways that we don't have language for. And then tools to engage our bodies and engage with our bodies, but also to engage our bodies to do things differently and to feel differently, which brings emotional freedom. I was thinking a lot about this, about what you do. And I'm like, this is like the perfect one-stop shop for artists and creatives that are looking to heal and grow. So I'm just so grateful to know that you're out there and the work that you're doing is it's so important. It's all so condensed and thoughtful. And uh, actually my, my wife and I, we did the Enneagram for the first time at a retreat about a month ago. And when I initially got my results, I hated them. Like I did not like what I saw, which of course is extremely revealing. But one of my numbers, I forget what the number was, but it was, I believe it was called the Achiever was the, uh, was the one that I got. And I just hated it so much because it just felt so intense and so stressful and so willful. And, um, but I'm like, you know what? I, I can't be ashamed of this. This is such a huge part of who I am. And just from accepting that and going on a long walk in the woods later the day at the retreat, the healing that it brought over me has been incredible. So huge supporter of the Enneagram for me. And what I like about it compared to other personality tests is that it gives you the whole picture. It We can look at levels of development and it shows us what you in particular look like when you're under stress or when you're relaxed. And it tells us what your true fears are, what your true desires are. And it gives so much information. So for me, oftentimes it feels almost like a fast track. I'll have people take that assessment before I ever really meet with them. And then I do that Enneagram strategy session. And I already have a pretty good idea as long as it's correct. Um, and of course, I you know I assess that in the strategy session, but it gives me a good idea of who this person already is without having to immediately dive into, you know, I was born in, you know, 1982 and, you know, it's it just, it's a fast track. And then we compare that back to the story. And it gives us the the really like the important pieces of the story um, that are reflected through that personality pattern that we're seeing on paper. It's really pretty cool. And Kim, where would you say your heart for all this work comes from? I certainly didn't choose this. Um, I didn't set out to work 
with people who struggled with, you know, addiction and suicidal ideation and really dark emotions. But, you know, I think God uses our stories to develop us to, you know, be able to bring our gifts into the world. So a combination of, you know, I have a son in the industry, so he did some child acting when he was younger. I was absolutely petrified. I didn't want him to do it. He was pretty relentless. And I knew in the back of my mind he he had a gift and he was good at it. And it was fun. But I met a lot of people, made a lot of friends. And then, you know, I had grown up poor and watching people on TV and thinking, everybody has it made. Like, they're so lucky. And even well into adulthood, I thought people, like, if they had their own business, it's like, they're really lucky. They don't have to work very hard and they make a lot of money and they probably get to travel a lot. So I wanted that. And so, and then I opened my own business. <laughs> and then I learned very quickly, that's actually not true. I am the first one here, the last one to leave and the last one to get paid. So um, I had a lot of, just in the area that I live in, I had a lot of clients in my therapy practice who were entrepreneurs and business owners, musicians, you know, professional athletes. And I just saw this pattern where my own belief system was being debunked, right? Like, oh, I'm seeing this. This is not the answer. And then, you know, again, trying to protect my son in the industry, feeling very protective, and then losing both friends and a client to that darkness who were very successful. I don't know. I feel like it's just something God has put on my heart. Like nothing pains me more than watching someone be publicly successful, knowing the struggle while the world thinks they have it made. And then while we're also regurgitating this narrative that this is the answer. And it's like almost, it became so bewildering to me. And what I realized is, you know, as my son was leaving, kind of, you know, being in front of the camera, wanting to be more behind it, was like, oh, I don't, I don't think all those years with him. I mean, obviously it was my job to protect him, but I feel like I was being prepared for the work I do now. It, I didn't choose it. I'm just being prepared for it. And I just, I feel like that's how I got here. Wow. Thanks for sharing. Yeah. So this idea of emotional wealth is a compelling idea. I never thought of that phrase before this conversation, just going back and forth with you. Because it's it's almost visual in the sense that like when I think about wealth, I usually see money and material goods, houses, cars, etc. But with emotional wealth, it's it's more of like a, a spiritual life that is rich and full with dynamic emotional experiences. It has a true feeling of wealth to me, this idea of emotional wealth. So I guess I'm curious how you tend to think about or would even define emotional health in your own words. For me, I think emotional health is a like a true sense of self, understanding my own self-worth, looking around and seeing health in the relationships that I have, enjoying the work that I do. It doesn't mean it's perfect all the time. doesn't mean there aren't, you know, painful pieces of that, but truly knowing that I'm making a difference and that I get excited when I see what's on my schedule. Um, and that for me, honestly, the, the most important piece for emotional health is authentic connections through my relationships. What do you think are some of the most overlooked aspects of true wealth? Yeah, this might sound strange, but I'm going to say sense of self. Mm -hmm. 
I think we're so busy gaining our opinions about ourselves, trying to find our worth, trying to find who we are through other means, through other people, whether it be through social media or even intimate partner relationships, even our children, if we're parents. And we think we forget ourselves. So much of what we're conditioned to look at and to to chase after is outside of ourselves. It's a partner, it's a car, a buzz, a feeling, a purse, a house, whatever. But rarely are we looked at like in the eyes and told that we matter and that we make a difference and that we have gifts to bring into the world and it is all independent of what anybody else thinks. And why do you think that's so hard for us to see the value in that? Social media is powerful yeah. and it's not new, right? We've been watching, I mean, you're in the industry, so you know what commercials do and what we're, what the point of it is, right? Right. And so I think if, you know, it's, it's the collision, right? If I don't have a sense of myself, it's not like marketing is bad, right? But if I don't have a sense of self and I am putting my faith, my worth, my belief systems into the messages that I'm receiving outside of myself, it's the perfect storm because now I've completely lost myself and perfect strangers are getting access to how I feel about myself. And so you have to be attuned to yourself to understand like, you know, purchase wisely, spend your money wisely, understand where the messages are coming from. And, you know, I mean, there's, I mean, we could go down a whole rabbit hole of, of that, but I mean, I just think there's a lot of messages outside of ourselves. Now that's kind of forward looking, but also again, if you have a backstory where you picked up a message, whether in your family or on the playground from a teacher, whatever, that said you weren't good enough. Now we really have a perfect storm because we have messages that says, if you have this thing, if you have this amount of money, this many followers, then you'll be, you'll, then you'll be okay. And is that something that you've encountered a lot in your work with your clients? Absolutely. And it's, you know, it's ironic because in schools and stuff, we teach kids to not bully, to be kind, you know, cyber safety, all of these things. But once you hit social media, there are, you know, we all know there are hundreds of thousands of adults who are cruel. Right to people who are putting themselves in public using their gifts, whether they're musicians or filmmakers or actors or entrepreneurs, whatever it may be. John, you and I, you know, we both admire Brene Brown, but you know, her, one of her first TED Talks, she was annihilated online and she was bringing such a beautiful message. And so I just can't stress enough the importance of self-attunement, self-awareness, and really radical self-acceptance because you have to start there. Yeah, I find it so hard to really sit down and contemplate what success means on an individual level. Because it's almost like you mentioned, it's like the culture and society as a whole just kind of defines it for us and we just kind of chase after that. But to actually sit down and find the space to think about, you know, what's meaningful for me? What does success mean to me? What does that actually look like? To take the minute or 10 minutes or hour, whatever it is, to actually start to do that work. I'm wondering why it's so hard and why there's so much resistance in that idea when we know on a soul level that this isn't feeling successful. 
but to actually sit down and do that work, I, I'm wondering why you think there's so much resistance to doing that work. Well, I mean, I think there's a lot of reasons. Um, you know, messaging, I think the messaging is strong for one. And when it's done well, the messaging is very convincing. And so, you know, we all know sales, like we, you know, we're going to fix a problem. So if the messaging is you have a problem or you are a problem, we we tend to attract to that very quickly, especially, again, if we've had a backstory that reinforces that, right? So if I grew up thinking I'm not good enough or anything enough, then a message comes along and reinforces that, then I believe it. It's like, ah, I knew that anyway. And then also, I think sometimes it's really hard to sit in that space to self-reflect and to question the messaging or even what, you know, what our family or friends have to say, because oftentimes to get quiet with ourselves, things come up, <laughs> our story comes up, our losses come up, our failures come up. And again, we've been conditioned to believe that those are bad, mm -hmm. that those only happen to some people when the absolute truth is they happen to every single one of us on this planet. Everyone has experienced some form of emotional pain, tragedy, loss, trauma, illness, grief, betrayal, failure, and it is part of the human condition. And that is also, John, part of my passion too, because I think we've been, I don't know, we've just been kind of sold this narrative that if you do everything right, if you're perfect, if you if you win the award, if you do whatever then you don't have to experience what it's like to be human. Mm -hmm. Somehow we'll be safe and we're not. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of power when we can allow ourselves to know this isn't personal. My experiences are personal, of course, but it's not a personal attack from the universe, right? It's, mm -hmm. it's being alive in a human world. And, you know, we don't want to normalize the trauma that comes that we cause each other, but it is human to experience that level of pain. Mm -hmm. And I think sometimes we just think we're alone in it and we're not. Yeah, what you mentioned about, you know, this idea that if we do everything right, we can avoid pain or we think that we can avoid the pain. That just strikes such a chord with me also because of where I just was the last five days. You know, I'm, I'm hanging out with the traumatically bereaved. You know, these are people who in a moment lost the person closest to them oftentimes a kid you know it's like yeah i don't know where i'm going with this i think that uh that idea of avoiding pain just really strikes a chord because it's impossible i think what i see what happens and i this has happened to me i've experienced it as well is if we if we go through life and we try to control right whether that be like try to be perfect or try to take care of everyone else or whatever it may be with this, for me, this is personal to me. I'm an Enneagram six. So if you understand Enneagram, it will be no surprise, but I'm always trying to get to this place of safety, right? If I just control things and if I just see the the danger ahead, I can avoid it. Mm -hmm. And then what happens is we get blindsided by life, something we never saw coming. And I think what happens because we've worked so hard to try to avoid that thing, then we get blindsided. Then I think it reinforces like, I don't know how to do anything. I did it wrong. I think if we're not careful and we're not aware, it reinforces this negative sense of self. 
Yeah, what I was thinking about when you're talking is just how easy it is in film to get lost in the reactivity of it all, just hopping from thing to thought to thing to thing to thing and constantly reacting. And then when you are blindsided by pain, which is inevitable, not having the space or the rhythm of rest and work to be able to deal with it. That's what I see over and over with friends and collaborators and myself. And so we just jump back into film and hide the feelings and keep going and going and going until eventually something snaps or breaks. And it's so traumatic that in my case, I almost left film completely. And that's just my story, but I'm sure you know many stories about what happens when you don't pause to address the pain and just continue masking it with more work and more work and more work. Yeah. Well, yeah. And that's, you know, my part of my story too, is having a successful practice, taking care of all the people and, you know, checking off some self-care things along the way, because that's what I learned in school, but then not having the true deep inner healing that I was needing, that I wasn't even necessarily always aware of until that trauma broke open, right? Mm -hmm. It was, you know, especially during COVID, it was like seeing person after person after person, you know, hour after hour on a screen that was brand new. And, you know, George Floyd died and a lot of political stuff and ever, all my clients had different opinions. Things were happening personally with, you know, my family and extended family. And it was like this trauma breaking open, mm -hmm. right? Where I was like, oh, I don't think I've been taking care of myself as well as I thought I was. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I thought, you know, I'd built a whole career on taking care of other people. And that was a season of my life where I'm like, oh my gosh, there is no other way to take care of people before taking care of myself to do mm -hmm. it well, because I thought I was. And I mean, I was, but not to the level that I am now. Mm -hmm. And I was suffering. I think that's a lot too, as we, um, I think in general, regardless of our careers, we become far too comfortable with our own suffering. And believing that it has to be that way. I mean, to be human is to suffer, but there are ways to combat that and to heal and to, like you said, make space for processing that. So it's not all suffering. Because if you imagine you chase your dreams, right, for 20 years, Rick Rubin, you know, he's a music producer. He talks about this. You know, if you chase your dreams for 20 years and you sacrifice and you're not really taking care of yourself, and even put aside like the, you know, the wildlife of the entertainment industry, just sacrificing yourself, your time, your family, losing more privacy as you go, losing more autonomy over your life as you go. And then let's say you you achieve it, right? You 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 get the dream. You have everything you ever dreamed of, but you're still you. Mm -hmm. And you still feel the same way you've always felt. And you realize that wasn't the answer. Mm -hmm. That's, I think, where we lose hope. And then people make a decision. Either they learn how to fight for themselves or we lose them. And that's my biggest heartbreak is where we lose them. When it comes to people getting help for themselves, I wonder, do you find that with the people that you've worked with in the past, generally, that there's a sense of selfishness or feeling selfish for taking time to work on themselves. Yep. And that, again, that messaging comes from family of origin, from, you know, society, social media. But also if you're 
you know, in a public career and you're doing fun things and you're having some success, what I find a lot of times is people feel guilty for not being happy. Mm -hmm. And so it's like they keep going around the same tree, right? Like, okay, I guess I got to do more. I just, I need to, you know, make another record. I need to make another movie. I need to get another, you know, another job. And it's, you know, and then there's just this like undertone of lack of gratitude. Mm -hmm. I should be grateful. Look at everything I have. Mm -hmm. And we're just missing the point, which is that inner work, that sense of self, that taking care of ourselves, healing trauma. If we have, you know, something we know that's knocking in the background, right? Mm -hmm. It's not going to go away. It will keep knocking until you face it. And so to reach out and to get care and to have a guide is, I think, one of the most greatest gifts you can give anybody around you that you do life with. I think it's a gift. It's not selfish. Because when we're not well, we, you know, I always say when we're not well, we hurt ourselves and each other. When we're not well, we hurt ourselves and the people we love the most. And when we are well, it spreads and it has a ripple effect. And we get to encourage people, even if we're not the one doing it, it just, it, you know, you just feel it and you want what other, what other people have when they're, when they're living their best life, truly, according to themselves, not social media. You mentioned the word grateful like a minute ago, and it, it took me back to a point when I was kind of, you know, being successful, having my own production company and that whole thing where I just remember feeling so ungrateful for everything. I couldn't appreciate it because my vision was so clouded by just everything, you know, turning my back on so many of my core values that I was unaware of for so long and just having no boundaries that I just, I couldn't be grateful for anything. People that I came in contact with would say things like, oh man, you're so lucky. You're so fortunate. You have this amazing company and blah, blah, blah. And there was actually a couple times where I had a near panic attack when people approach me and say those things to me, which at the, that time I didn't realize why that panic attack was happening because I was so at conflict with, with my true values. But looking back on it, I can understand it. But I just remember those being a couple of the biggest red flags to me when people would come up to me and, and say how amazing I was and how amazing our company was. And I just felt so ungrateful and not proud and not happy those were big signposts for me along the way yeah well like we like we talked earlier right like that narrative that if you have all those things then you're happy and you know you're lucky and you're rich and you're making money and everything's good and we i think it's it would just we would all benefit if we untethered that from that narrative and we just instead of you know, looking at someone and saying, oh my gosh, you're so successful. That's amazing. And we just got more into a practice of, how are you? Yeah. How are you really? I know right. that being successful comes with a cost. Mm -hmm. How does that balance feel right now? So let's talk a little bit about getting happy, finding joy, uh, all the things that you help your clients with in your work. I'm wondering if on a practical note, is there a way that you could suggest that someone starts to formulate a sort of individualized definition of success for themselves? 
a high level approach. What I say, what I believe is that we need four things for optimal mental health. And again, optimal mental health does not mean that we're happy all the time. You know, my current life mantra is I have gratitude for everything that's going well in my life, in my community, and in the world. And I have resiliency for everything that's not. Because that reminds me not to get stuck in this trap of like, if everything's going okay, I'm okay and I'm safe. Because I know the shoe, the other shoe could drop any minute, right? So optimal mental health is not pure joy all the time. It's also resiliency for adversity. And so I just want to be really clear about that. Um, because resiliency feels powerful too. It's when we can have something hard happen and it doesn't take us out. It, you know... And, and not only does it not just flatten us and take us out, but we can give ourselves permission to rest, to take a break, to have boundaries, whatever. But four things we need for optimal mental health. The first one is wellness. So these are, you know, what, John, I know you call your bumpers, your life bumpers. Is that what you call? <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, your morning routine, your evening routine, drinking your water, getting in a workout, getting in nature, taking you know, supplements or keeping up with, you know, medicine or, you know, medical stuff if you need to, if that's, you know, what's going on. But, um, you know, doing things that are creative, not just for work, but for play, for fun, listening to music, dancing, doing things that you love to do as a kid, going to the park, walking your dog. things These things I think we have lost as if that's something we'll get to when we find time. And it's unfortunate because those are the things that make us feel alive. Right. We, we know the, the richest, most successful people in the world aren't necessarily the happiest. Um, and so the wellness comes just that general self-care, um, self-awareness, self-attunement. Um, and then so that's wellness. The second one is connection. So having connection to healthy relationships, having connections within your community, you know, I think of like your, um, you know, we are variable, your community, your film community um, with like-minded people, um, you know, but also I would say connection to yourself. So spending time with yourself, giving yourself permission to take 10 minutes, 30 minutes in the middle of the day to self-reflect and to reset if you need to. So wellness, connection, and then meaning. So knowing that you're making a difference, I think that's so important knowing, you know, there's two things that people typically need in the workplace. And that is to know that they're making a difference, that they they matter, but also that they have room to grow. And I think the reason we want to grow is not always that we want to make more money. It's we just want to make more of an impact because we, we most of us, general human beings, want to make an impact. We want to make the world a better place. So having meaning in the work that we do, making meaning out of, you know, our time, um, understanding, you know, what our, what our values are, you know, what's important to us, what is meaningful to us, and owning that as an individual or a family unit or relationship as opposed to what other people say you should be doing. Mm -hmm. And then um, the fourth one is healing. So healing is... I always say like if those first three, especially that first one are tricky for you and you're struggling to get outside, you're struggling to get out of bed, you know, the traditional medical model of mental health is you're depressed and here's medication. And I'm certainly not saying there's anything wrong with that, 
But in the coaching that I do, you know, it's mental wellness coaching because what I do is I empower people to get up, to do the things they don't want to do so that they can learn to feel the shift in their nervous system. So the healing is often related to trauma, unhealed stories, unhealed parts of our stories that maybe we have avoided, that we've stuffed down, that we've tried to leave in the past. But it, like, again, it keeps knocking. If those first three are really hard, it's probably something bigger and probably time. It's an invitation for you to seek out professional care, whether that be coaching, therapy, um, you know, groups, whatever it may be, whatever feels right to you. But those are the four pillars that I think when we are in touch with those and we are monitoring those, that's when everything else starts to open up. Thanks, Kim. Yeah. What came to mind when you were mentioning that is, I'm just curious to hear your thoughts about this, is this idea that we don't always acknowledge our stories and the pain associated with our stories as pain. We just see it as, oh, that's just something that happened in my life. We just kind of normalize it because, oh, it's just my story. It's no big deal. It's just a little thing that happened. So we normalize these things that are can be catastrophic and traumatic and grief filled, but we just survive. You know, we just continue surviving, continue hustling. And I guess I don't know exactly what my question is, but is that is that just something that you that you see a lot? with your clients and you you learn that they have these things about them that are traumatic, but they don't necessarily see it that way. It's just been a part of their story that's just no big detail necessarily. Well, the good news, maybe the bad news, I think it's everything. Yeah. I think our stories matter. I think if we want to live our best life, I think if we want to engage with our highest self, if you will, if we want to lose our wounded ego, if we want to, you know, recover from triggers, whatever it may be, we have to look back. And the reason being, and, you know, I think some people are scared of it because like, well, I don't want to be a victim. I don't want to feel sorry for myself. It's fine. I'm fine. The reason being is because everything that we have experienced has given us a filter for how we're perceiving the world today. And that's just true. <laughs> that's just the way it is. Every, our, you know, we all have a nervous system. And so our nervous system is always scanning the environment for danger, right? And always trying to protect us. But we're not taught that. We're taught like, suck it up. Don't cry. Don't be a baby. You know, those sorts of things. And so I think if we understand that we have a nervous system that has been shaped according to our experiences then we have a lot more freedom because what we do, what I do and the work I do is when, you know, when someone is triggered, we all familiar with the word trigger. I see it as an invitation. Somebody really gets on your nerves, something ticks you off on set, whatever it may be. 98. Okay. I'll go 95%. It is, has very little to do with what's actually happening right now. And mostly to do with what you've already experienced because for whatever reason, your nervous system is like, that's familiar. This doesn't end well. Lock it down. We're either going to fight or flight, right? We're going to put our dukes up or we're going to shut down. <laughs> and so I think understanding, just having that compassion for what's happening right now, this feels terrible. And I've probably felt this before. <laughs> so, you know, doing the the healing work is being willing to look back 
in those deeper layers for the purpose of, you know, I said like dig out the root and look at it and examine it, see what was missed, what, what, you know, what need didn't get met because that's what you're needing right now. A somewhat benign example might be if you got made fun of on a playground, right? And it really hurt you and you were eight years old and it really hurt you and you went home and you cried and, you know, your parents were like, well, that's just how kids are. You're fine. Go play. And there's no care. There's no repair. Let's say you're 35 years old and you're on set and some guys are razzing each other and somebody, you know, makes a joke about you. And all of a sudden you're like, and you're really upset. Mm-hmm. That eight-year-old is like, um, this isn't going to end well. Can we run? <laughs> or you better fight because otherwise we're going to get our butts kicked. Mm-hmm. Right. And so our nervous system is always communicating to us. But the problem is it gets confused of what's old memory and what's actually happening. And so always 10,000%, you have to have compassion for yourself and what's going on. Yeah, that's very well said. Thank you. Yeah, I started to realize the value of my own story the more I got comfortable sharing my own trauma from childhood with close friends and then hearing their responses. Like, oh my gosh, you know, like... Wow, I'm so happy you're still here. I'm so happy you survived. And but to me, my trauma, the trauma that I experienced, again, it was just so nor I didn't think anything of it. I'm like, oh, it's just a little something that happened when I was in high school or a little something that happened when I was in my twenties. It was just so small to me. And the more attention that I give it, the more I'm growing. Cause I, I was the type that I was as a result of my own trauma in high school, I would always just try and fit in and avoid conflict everywhere because what happened to me put me at risk of being rejected from a group of people that I didn't want to be rejected from. So my whole life, I was just trying so hard to fit in. And by looking at that trauma and looking at those triggers, as you said, anytime like a conflict or anything would pop up, it would trigger me. But now I can just say, oh, okay, that is just this response that I'm having, like you said, in my nervous system. There's no real threat here. This was triggered when I was in ninth grade and just showing that part of myself compassion. But you're right, it's it's a constant practice. I try and listen to podcasts about the nervous system and the mind-body connection. I find listening to that knowledge to be incredibly healing and eye-opening just to say, oh, there actually isn't anything wrong with me. This is just my body reacting to my trauma. I'm so happy you have this knowledge and this experience to share on a a very experienced professional level because I'm just barely able to articulate it. I just know it's been profound that that I've started learning about it the last year or so. Yeah. And I mean, thank you for that. And also, I think, you know, we're in we're just in really the beginning. I mean, a lot is happening. We're hearing the word trauma. We're hearing the word triggers. But I, I think it's important that we understand because a lot of people are like, well, I don't have trauma. You know, I wasn't abused. I wasn't beaten. You know, I didn't see anything traumatic. But it's it's those events that cause a shift in our nervous system. Mm-hmm. So it might even not be anything that you directly experience. It might be more covert, right? Like you could feel dad's anger and you know because energy is important with people right especially in our homes and so if you just always felt that like you're going to have a more tense anxious 
attachment style, but also an anxious nervous system. And it doesn't mean dad ever did anything. Mm -hmm. You know, it doesn't mean he had to hit you or you just knew. Mm -hmm. And again, as kids, we don't have language. And so we're picking up and our nervous system is like, well, that doesn't feel safe or, you know, and then, so it's not like who has trauma and who doesn't. It's just better to look at like, what experiences have you had that shifted your nervous system and impacted how you perceive the world today through your defense mechanisms, through your coping strategies? Some of them are healthy. Some of them are not. And trauma, as I understand it, it doesn't necessarily have to be associated with a singular event, right? It can be repeated kind of like you mentioned, like the father's behavior over a period of time. It's like accumulates to a traumatic episode. Is that right? Sure. Yeah. Yep. And then, you know, and then you're starting to talk about like complex trauma. So people sometimes are diagnosed with complex post-traumatic stress disorder because it's something that was prolonged or there were multiple things that happened. And I'll just, you know, I'm just going to say this unapologetically. As a clinician in the traditional model of therapy, I was taught to believe that people with PTSD, depression, anxiety, like it was a mental illness. And I just don't see it that way anymore. I see it as a human experience. And if we can normalize the human experience and talk about what happens in our bodies and get away from this idea that some people have mental illness and some people don't and embrace this idea that everybody has mental health, just like we all have physical health, I think we will all benefit from that. And I think, you know, there's a lot of, you know, trauma-informed coaching coming up. And, you know, I think we are shifting how we see people as humans, as opposed to diagnoses. And I, as a coach, want to be on that side of it, as opposed to, like you said, what's wrong with me? Nothing. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Nothing's wrong with you. You're a whole person. You're not broken. You're a whole person. You just have experiences that caused your nervous system to do exactly what your nervous system is designed to do. That's how we were created so that we can stay alive. Like if you think of somebody like you see in a grocery store and they're really angry I remind myself like that is what that person learned how to survive. They're staying alive right now. They just don't know that they don't need it. Mm-hmm. They're just not there yet. Or like me, always trying to stay safe. I was trying to stay safe when I already was. <laughs> but my nervous system was so much alert. And once I learned what was happening, it's like, well, I can actually heal my anxiety. Mm-hmm. I can control my anxiety. I can shift my nervous system. And that's empowering. It's also so amazing the role that language plays in this whole healing process, like the word safety, for example, or the idea that there's no threat here. The language that we associate, for me at least, has been incredibly helpful to be able to walk outside and be like, okay, there's no real threat here. I can relax. Or I'm in a safe environment here. I can relax. I don't know what other words people have, but I just wanted to share that because that's been like a huge saving grace in my, in my journey, just language, the right words. Yeah. Language is absolutely powerful. And so it's powerful to merely have it so you can articulate like, oh, okay, my nervous system, I feel anxious, but wait a second, I am safe. Let me go out and put my bare feet on the grass and let me reconnect with nature And you have that language, but it's also powerful in how you talk to yourself. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I mean, cognitive behavioral therapy tells us, you know, what we 
what we say, what we think impacts how we feel and how we feel impacts how we behave. So, you know, if you wake up in the morning and you're like, oh, I feel disgusting. I, you know, I didn't get anything done yesterday. I'm such, I'm so lazy, you know, and then what do you do? You feel bad, you get on your phone and then you just reinforce that. Right. But if you get up, like, you know, I get up in the morning, like, I don't want to get up. I don't want to get up at five. I made a promise. I would, I keep my promises to myself and I try, you know, to not have any negative self-talk because it impacts how I feel. And I'm in the business of feeling the best that I can feel. And so it's like, okay, I'm going to keep my promise. And for me, going to the gym is medicine. Time to take my medicine. This is what I do now. You know, we crave what we need and we lean toward what makes us feel good. So if your wife is your biggest cheerleader, you're going to lean toward her. So can we do that for ourselves? So I want to keep asking you questions, but at the same time, I want to open it up to uh, the other folks on the call. I don't want to hog all the time. So I guess my last question to segue into... uh, questions that other folks have would be what does all of this trauma mind body connection stuff have to do with this idea of being emotionally wealthy it has everything to do with being emotionally wealthy the reason being when you are emotionally wealthy when you have those four pillars in a pretty good sink when you're aware of them when you have your bumper rails for life that you are committed to taking care of yourself, when you are aware that your nervous system gets dysregulated and that's human and you're not broken, when you are aware of your truest desires, when you know that whatever gets put on your heart came from something much larger than yourself, when you know you're here to make a difference, the house, the car, the money, the fans, they are all just secondary. They're not what's driving you. So they can come and go. Comments can come and go. Cars can come and go. But you feel like, you know, and not feel like, but you are living in your truest essence when you are attuned authentically to yourself and to the people in your closest circle, right? Our circle of influence, our very close relationships. And the further out we get, the less impact those people should have. And so to be emotionally wealthy, like, you know, I want, I I want you to have your success. I want you, you know, your career to take off. I just don't want it to take you out. And if you are grounded and you are mentally well, you are just going to be better off to be able to say no to a job, to be able to stand up for yourself on a job, to be able to look at your schedule, how it you know how a job is going to impact your relationships as opposed to simply, you know, your pocketbook. You know, we we all know someone or all have been that someone who has been at the top of the mountain and looking down and going, that's it. I did everything you told me to do. I did it all. This is it. I lost this. I lost this. I lost this. So when you're emotionally wealthy, I think you're more attuned and you're more honoring of your own beliefs, your own values, your relationships. You cause less damage to other people and to yourself. And you have a far greater positive impact on the world. And that pretty much sums it up for episode 15. A big thanks to Kim for opening up and sharing her story with us. If you found value through Kim's knowledge and experience, again, you can track her down via her website at www.kimrapach.com. And lastly, if you are interested in tuning into the community member Q&A that unfolded after Kim and I's conversation, you can join the community via free trial at members.wearevariable.com 
or just wearevariable.com. That's all for now. And I look forward to sharing with you the next podcast that I'll be co-hosting with filmmaker and cinematographer Jared Levy next month. Take care.